welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm Arius Dare, Deputy Editor at NK News, and I'll be your host of this very special 250th episode of the show. My guest today is Jacko Zwetslut, who's just written a fascinating piece about the first North Korean to ever stand and face charges before a U.S. courtroom, a little-known saga that stretched out over nearly a year after North Korean Onam Cholo sexually assaulted a woman in a New York park. This is Jacko's first guest appearance on the NK News podcast. You may know him best as the host of the show for the previous 249 episodes. Jacko, how the turntables? Wow, this is uh, quite the, the feeling being on the other side of the table and not having headphones on my ears for a change. Yeah, that's right. Well, before we jump in, uh, a quick reminder to all of our listeners to like and subscribe to the NK News podcast. Please. Leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts Audible from. apparently also takes reviews. Audible as well. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Well, you can also unlock all of our North Korea-related news, research, and analysis at nknews.org. Now, Jacko, what happened on September 5th, 1982 at Twin Lakes Park in East Chester, New York? Uh, a group of seven North Korean diplomats from the observer mission to the United Nations were up there on a fishing trip, and one of them broke off from the party and went for a walk by himself. And around the same time, there was an American woman who was also at the uh, Twin Lakes Park on a fishing trip, and she was walking with her rod on a bridle path when suddenly she said she was grabbed by uh, from behind by a man who fondled her breasts and brought her to the ground. And she then fought him off. Uh, tried to uh, strike him with her rod. He picked up a rock and menaced her with it, and she ran away, uh, attracting the attention of a nearby resident who called the police, uh, and, and then she waited for the police to, uh, to get there. The man uh, in question uh, then took off his shirt and went in a different direction, and uh, the police this arrived. This is during the day? Yeah, it was, it was the, the afternoon of uh, it was a lovely September day, uh, people were out there and enjoying the park. And so there were a couple of horse riders as well in the park. And so the police arrived, and one of them, like in a movie, commandeered a horse from a passerby and said, I'm you know, going after that guy. So one, guy, one, one policeman was on foot, one was on horseback, and they, they uh, apprehended the man. And at some point, I'm not sure exactly when, but at some point the other six North Koreans arrived as well. So they had all seven of them there. Uh, and they asked the woman, the victim of the assault, uh, can you identify the attacker? And she said, well, I'm not sure because the guy who I saw was wearing a gray shirt and, and this guy is not wearing a gray shirt anymore. So, uh, and, and she also was a bit uh, spooked, a bit frightened. And so she came to the, uh, the police station on a different day later and identified her attacker uh, by, uh, by photograph. Uh, but So there were seven men. They were apprehended. The police wanted to arrest them and take them away. Because the, the, the one man who you know, probably was the attacker uh, had to be wrestled to the ground and was struggling, couldn't speak English, so they didn't know what he was saying. Uh, and so they were going to arrest them all. And um, only one of them apparently was carrying an ID. He came forward and said to the police, we're North Korean diplomats. We're from the observer mission to the United Nations. We have diplomatic immunity. You must let us go. And so the police let them go. And that was the end of the incident for that day. Uh, but then on, on a subsequent day... Uh, you know, after the, uh, the, the victim identified the attacker from the 26 photographs, uh, the police then issued a, um, a warrant, or they rather they applied for a warrant, and a warrant was issued for the arrest of that man who was Onam Chol. I wonder where they got the mugshots if they didn't actually uh, bring the North Koreans in. Yes, it wasn't mugshots. What they did was, uh, I think, either from the mission or from the UN, they simply got the, the, the 26 ID photographs 
of all of the men. There was a, a larger mission. I mean, the mission today uh, to the United Nations, which is a full mission, has fewer than 10 diplomats, um, around six or seven. Back then, in 1982, it was only an observer mission. They had no fewer than 26 people. And so all of those photographs were brought in. And then they were kind of arranged on three different pages. Uh, and the victim looked at all three. And also the witnesses who were there too, the, the, the people on horseback and the people who were there, uh, they looked at the, uh, at the photographs and the arresting police officers and said, that's the guy. So they all identified Onam Chol. And at that point, did police then go to the DPRK embassy or perhaps the, the residence? Uh, I believe it's probably the same place, or at least it was at that point, and, and serve papers? Or How, how exactly uh, were the North Koreans made aware that there was now an arrest warrant out for uh, Mr. O? Yeah, they went to, uh, to the mission. Um, I've temporarily forgotten the address, but it's in Manhattan. Uh, it's, no, it's not where today's mission is, that so they've moved. Uh, but they went to the address. But as it's a foreign mission you know, to the UN, the police can't just enter at will without invitation. So they were kind of waiting outside, a bit like the case of Julian Assange. They were waiting on the street uh, in case the, uh, the diplomats should appear, and then they would arrest him. He didn't. He stayed inside. Uh, now, I presume that... Uh, the, the mission did have a lawyer, a legal representative, and so they probably, uh, the police probably um, made the, the arrest warrant known through that lawyer. His name was Stanley Faulkner. He's since deceased. I think he died around 2004. But he was quite prominent as a, a left-wing lawyer in New York. He was a, a big fan of uh, North Korea. He, in fact, helped set up the, what was called the American Korean Information Center in Manhattan, uh, which was sort of the equivalent of Alejandro Cao de Benos's uh, Korea Friendship Association these days. So he was promoting and advocating for North Korea. He wrote a, not wrote, but he signed a letter to Congress in 1974 calling for the removal of U.S. troops from Korean soil and the um, response to uh, legitimate grievances that North Korea had. So he was very much a friend of North Korea, uh, and he represented Onam Chol and the U.N. mission in this case. And basically, what you had was a, a standoff where police officers were in front of the North Korea mission. Yeah. The North Koreans refused to come out, I right. assume. Were other North Korean diplomats allowed to leave? Were they allowed to receive uh, deliveries? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have any information on the, the go comings and goings of the other North Korean diplomats. I assume, though, that since the restaurant was, for, was only for Onam Chol, that he was the only one who stayed in the embassy for, for 10 months, that you know, eventually the other people had to go out and, I don't know... Um, do shopping, grocery shopping, take out the laundry, something like that. So I think they were able to come and go, but he had to stay there. Now, what, what you do really well in this piece is you kind of document the, the really kind of strange relations, if you can call them, the, mm. call, call them that, between Washington and Pyongyang at the time. Right, because they us, weren't talking to each other. Yeah, that's right. And so you, here you have two dozen North Koreans in New York City, yep. and U.S. officials are, are legally barred from actually engaging right. with any sort of discussions. Yeah. So... How exactly did the ball move forward on this? I mean, you, you have a, uh, a sexual assault that happens. Right. You have the victim clearly identify uh, the attacker as a North Korean diplomat. And this North Korean diplomat will not go yep. outside of the compound. Yeah. And the U.S. officials are not able to actually ask right. whether or not he can come out. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting that uh, even though um, the United Nations General Assembly is headquartered in the United States, it is, you know, technically it's a separate organization. So uh, the U.S., just like every other country, has its own mission to the United Nations. Uh, and so there were, there's a, uh, a host country committee which takes care of U.N.-America relations. And there's the, there was a gentleman also uh, since deceased, Robert Muller, Muller with an, with an O, not the uh, FBI director. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Robert Muller with an O. Quite the career, apparently. Right, who, who had a, 
you know, one of his jobs was dealing with uh, alleged crimes committed by uh, UN diplomats on U.S. soil. And there was a lot of them. And, it, you know, some of them were as small as parking fines and, and speeding tickets. But in this case, yeah, sexual assault. So it was his job to go to the United Nations. Uh, and the United Nations has its own legal counsel. I've forgotten the gentleman's name right now, but he was dealing with the UN's legal counsel. So the UN was actually an intermediary here between the US host country committee and uh, the UN, uh, sorry, the North Korean observer mission to the United Nations. So the UN basically brokered uh, between the two, you know, acted as a, sort of a, a good faith intermediary. And this sort of interaction actually still exists today um, in, you know, the North Korea Watcher community. It's called the, the, the UN channel. Yeah. Whenever there's some sort of uh, dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea, it's often suspected that an initial kind of outreach was made uh, through the, the the U.S. I'm sorry, the the North Korea mission in the U.S. Right. Uh, but at that at that point, it was it was way more cumbersome because, as you mentioned, North Korea was not actually a member of the United Nations, not so, a full member, not yeah. a full member. So, what exactly was the, the the process that one would go through? the The U.S. wants to serve an arrest warrant to a North Korean diplomat. Do they then? hand it off to the UN counterpart, and the UN then delivers it to the, to the North Koreans. How exactly were these negotiations held over, uh, how long was it? Uh, Ten months, yeah. Uh, the the uh, incident happened on, on September 5th, and the first and only court hearing took place uh, in Korea time on Armistice Day, so July 27th, 1983. So the following year, on the day that the, uh, the, the armistice was signed, in New York time it was on the 26th, uh, but in Korea, it was the 27th. So it, it took 10 months. Now, as to exactly how that process worked, I, I'm afraid I don't have a lot of details on that. What I did uh, obtain from the uh, Westchester County Court through a Freedom of Information request is I have all the legal papers that were filed with the Westchester County Court, everything from the original police reports to uh, court documents, for example, the the true, true bill, which was passed up from the grand jury to uh, uh, make the decision to indict. So all of those papers, I've got them. Uh, I, but then what's missing is that interaction through the UN. So then I had to make a separate uh, freedom of information request through, to the US State Department. That was over two years ago, and I'm still waiting on a result. So I imagine that all of the dealings with the, uh, the complicated dealings between the US and the, and the North Koreans through the UN would be in those documents. But yeah, they're not being made available to me yet. So if anyone's out there uh, working in the US State Department, if you can leak those documents to me, I'd be very grateful. Well, that's right, because actually there is, uh, it's important to understand the precedent for this, mm. because as you say, ultimately, uh, this was the very first North Korean to actually face a U.S. judge in a U.S. courtroom. Yeah. This is how the 10-month the saga uh, culminated. Uh, there is another North Korean who's currently facing charges for right. money laundering. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but set us up here. After 10 months of back and forth negotiations, or really, I guess, third-party negotiations right. through the U.N., what happened to Mr. Rowe? So uh, Mr. O, uh, through his lawyer, Stanley Faulkner, uh, agreed to plead guilty to a lesser charge. Originally, so on the, uh, the, the indictment sheet, there are three charges. First level uh, is first degree uh, sexual assault. That's a felony. Uh, then there's um, menacing, which is the bit where he picked up the rock. And then there's a third one. I forget what that one is. Um, oh, uh, holding a weapon. That's the rock, right? So the waving of the rock is the menacing, and then the holding of a weapon was the rock itself. So there are three charges that he would have been charged with. And uh, instead, he got to plead guilty to a lesser uh, charge, which is a misdemeanor third-degree sexual assault, uh, which didn't involve jail time. And the understanding would be that he would uh, plead guilty to this charge 
on the condition that he leave America almost immediately after the, uh, the court hearing uh, and never return again. And so uh, the U.S. State Department was okay with this. The district attorney was okay with this. The, the victim was okay. And also the lawyer, Stanley Faulkner, was okay. So then the North Koreans a- agreed too. Uh, and so on the 26th of uh, July, uh, New York time, uh, seven North Koreans, the same amount as who were at Twin Lakes Park on the day of the assault. I'm not sure if they're all the same men, but the same amount of men, all appeared at the court uh, in Westchester County with their lawyer, Stanley Faulkner. There was a very short hearing uh, in which uh, Judge Francis Nikolai read out the list of rights that uh, Ornam Chol would be forfeiting by pleading guilty. Uh, and actually, the, uh, it's interesting that the North Koreans who were there through their lawyer asked that that list of rights be truncated, that the whole process be sped up. And it's not even a, you know, not a very long process. It's only about 20 minutes anyway, but they really wanted that to be cut short. And I'm not sure why, uh, but um, I had a friend of mine, Brandon Gautier, speak to Judge Nikolai on the phone, and he believes, Judge Nikolai believes that uh, it may have been that the North Koreans didn't want rights to be read out that didn't apply in North Korea. So they didn't want to Go putting funny ideas in Ornam Chol's head, I guess. Was the judge privy to the 10 months of negotiations that happened before this? Was was, was he made aware of the implications that he was uh, basically about to set? No, yeah. So he was completely outside those negotiations. So when it was presented to him as uh, as court ju- uh, as trial judge, it was presented as a uh, as a fait accompli, that uh, this is all ready, it's, it, you know, you've just got to preside over this and uh, we'll get a, a guilty plea and, and you can adjourn the verdict for 48 hours, and that gives him time to leave the country. So, so all of that had been wrapped up well before it came uh, to Judge Nikolai's desk. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened after? Did he abide by the terms of the agreement? Did he get on a plane and leave? Yeah, within 24 hours, I think, he was on a plane, on a Czechoslovakian Airlines plane um, to Prague from New York. And uh, before he left, after the, the court hearing, it wasn't a trial because he pled guilty, but after the court hearing, uh, the... The, the, the most senior North Korean diplomat there, uh, Chun Jae-hong, who was later on ambassador to Australia when I was there in the early 2000s. Uh, Chun Jae-hong. friend of yours. I'd not met him, no. Uh, but I was aware of him. Anyway, so he made a statement to the waiting reporters saying that this is a victory and that we've won and that, um, you know, uh, Onam Chol was, was innocent of all charges and that this hearing um, basically uh, proves that and, and it's a great thing. And, and Stanley Faulkner said something similar, and Ornam Chol left on the plane. And then I guess there might have been a, a pre-written statement, but the statement from him wasn't released until after he'd left. So either he filed it in, uh, in Prague or he left it with his colleagues in New York. But Ornam Chol himself made a statement that, um, you know, he was uh, happy that it was a success and, and, uh, and it was, the whole thing was a, was a, fi- a fit-up, a, a stitch-up, a, a frame job by the Americans, uh, and that he was completely innocent. Now, the, the North Koreans, uh, Chun Jae-hong, said that he would be given a hero's welcome upon return to North Korea. We don't actually know, or I don't know, what happened to him when he arrived in North Korea because I've not been able to find any follow-up reporting at all. I've not been able to find his name in any um, online North Korean media archives or anything, So uh, either in Korean or in English. So goodness knows what happened to him. Did he get his hero's welcome? Did he get a nice apartment in the highest building in Pyongyang? Was he sent to a farm? Was he executed for bringing shame onto the North Korean um, diplomatic efforts? I don't know. Tell us a little bit about the, the diplomatic situation between the two Koreas and the UN at this time. Yeah, um, both Koreas uh, were not full member states of the United Nations. And that was because 
still today, I mean, since 1948, the two Koreas have competed for legitimacy. They both want to be the only legitimately recognized Korean state on the Korean Peninsula. And so each of the two Koreas was only happy if one of them could join the UN, and they wanted themselves to be that one. So South Korea wanted to be the one to join, and North Korea wanted to be the one to join. Uh, ultimately, what happened was, was a um, uh, kind of a compromise was worked out in 1991 when uh, North Teul was president of South Korea, uh, that both Koreas joined as full members simultaneously into the United Nations General Assembly. So they both switched from observer mission status to full mission status, in 1991. But in, in 83, both of them had only uh, observer status, and they were both trying to find ways to outfox, outmaneuver, uh, outwit, and embarrass the other North Korea. So as you can imagine, th- this case involving Ornam Chol and the sexual assault was, uh, was grist for the, to the mill for the, the South Koreans because it gave them a, a chance to give a black eye to the North Korean diplomatic efforts. Yeah, that's right. You, uh, you, you linked to some really fascinating newspaper articles from the time of yeah. South Korean newspapers interviewing uh, the, the North Koreans, I guess, from the embassy in New York. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Chorsten Ilbo actually did a telephone interview with, um, with somebody who de- declined to identify himself uh, at the UN, at the North Korean observer mission to the UN in New York. But uh, they basically said, yes, we were there at the park on the day, but the rest is nonsense. And, you know, all Namchol is completely innocent of the charges. Now, about a year later after Oh returned to North Korea, or at least we assume that he returned to North Korea, mm. there, is there, there's an interesting discovery made at the DMZ. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, and that's exactly, uh, it's that discovery that got me on, sent me down the rabbit hole to unravel this whole story because I'd never heard of this Onam Chol incident before. A lot of people that I know of in, in North Korean studies had never heard of it. it it's really been forgotten since 1980. Uh, three when the uh, when the hearing happened uh, and you know that's it, this next month september is 40 years since the incident itself at twin lakes park so um a source of mine uh was patrolling the demilitarized zone uh in either the spring of 83 or the spring of 84 he can't remember exactly which year but he picked up this leaflet assuming it was a north korean leaflet because you know north korea and south korea had been heavily bombarding each other with propaganda leaflets since the beginning of the Korean War. And so even afterwards, that continued. And so both Koreas were trying to convince the soldiers and the people of the other side, hey, uh, we're doing a better job, and your side is crooked, corrupt, illegitimate, and, and just bad people, basically. And so he found this leaflet, which had on the one side a very graphic, a sort of a lurid cartoon depicting an artist's conception of what the assault might have looked like. Uh, so it's got a, a woman lying on the ground. Her dress is torn, uh, pulled up to her thighs, and she is kicking. It's quite graphic. Quite graphic, and and she is kicking the uh, this North Korean uh, in the jaw, uh, and he's sort of got his. I think he's holding onto his pants, and uh, he looks like he's about to uh, you know to try to uh, go further with this incident. And so that's what the the cartoon shows. And on the back of it, there's this long text about North Korean diplomats not only in doing this assault, but also. Um, smuggling in other countries. And it mentions specifically Sweden, Austria, Finland, and Nepal, countries where North Korean diplomats had apparently been expelled for engaging in things like smuggling gold, smuggling cigarettes, etc. Things that Taeyong Ho describes in his memoir. Uh, I'm not sure if they're the exact incidents, but certainly things of that nature. Uh, and so th- it's, it's written, the leaflet is written from the perspective of uh, North Koreans 
Uh, so it's a false flag leaflet. It tries to pretend, hey, we're North Koreans too, and we're upset that our diplomats are doing this thing, and we're calling upon our fellow North Koreans to, uh, to rise up and call for the punishment of these corrupt and crooked and disgusting lowly North Korean diplomats. But we know that it's a South Korean leaflet because it was found in the demilitarized zone. On, so it had obviously fallen from a balloon on the way from South Korea into North Korea, and, and it had fallen there, uh, you know, short of its target. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both Koreas were, um, as I said, doing leaflets for decades, and some of these leaflets were what you call false flag leaflets. So it pretends to be South Korean for South Koreans, but it's actually written by North Koreans. And in this case, it pretends to be North Koreans, but it's actually written by the South Korean government. Uh, and so I, I was given this leaflet by my source a couple of years ago, and I looked at it and I thought, what? Did this happen? And that's what started me, you know, Googling and, and looking at newspaper archives. And, and that's how I came up with this, uh, this story. Well, it's particularly timely right now because, as we mm. mentioned just a few minutes ago, there, there is another North Korean uh, that currently is facing charges uh, in the U.S. court for money laundering. Do you see any parallels between this? I, I think that there are, are key differences here, mm. uh, but I, I've also noticed the framing uh, in how this court case is presented as being a landmark case, the first case. And it right. seems that history has forgotten uh, the, the very first time that a North Korean stood in front of a U.S. judge. Yeah, I mean, in this case, the man's name, if I remember rightly, is Moon Chol Myung, and he's the first person of, uh, with a DPRK passport ever to be uh, extradited from another country, in this case Malaysia, to the United States to stand trial. Uh, so there's a big difference there in that Ornam Chol was actually in the U.S. and the crime was committed in the U.S. In this case, Moon Chol Myung, uh, who's accused of allegedly uh, doing uh, what bank fraud and money laundering, was not in the U.S. when he committed those acts. Now, is he also a, a North Korean diplomat? I don't know whether he's a diplomat. I, don't, I haven't seen that reported, so I don't know. Uh, he may just be a citizen or somebody working in... Um, What's the Bureau 39 that does all the financial stuff? They're yeah. not technically traveling on diplomatic passports, I think. So anyway, he was in Malaysia uh, and he'd been extradited to the States and he's on a trial. Now, uh, he's on trial there, but I understand from the most recent reporting here at NK News, I think it's uh, my colleague uh, Ethan Jewell wrote a story recently that said that uh, Moon Chol Myung plans through his lawyer to file an Alford plea, which is not quite the same as a guilty plea, but it is saying that... Um, I realize that the preponderance of evidence shows that uh, you know could lead to a guilty charge if I go through the whole process of a trial. So I'm just going to not contest it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting that the media hasn't quite hasn't picked up that there was this North Korean who was arrested and and uh, and tra- charged uh, before Moon Chol Myung, that namely Oh Nam Chol. That that's hasn't been dug up yet. I'm really quite surprised by that. But uh, now it's uh, it's out for everyone to see. Now, you mentioned uh, the leaflet uh, that was found uh, in the, the early 1980s. And yeah. it, it gives us a, a really good segue, I think, to ask you uh, about your own uh, personal research. Uh, so rarely do we get this opportunity yeah. to ask the host of the NK News podcast questions about North Korea. Uh, but you've done extensive research on North Korean comics, and uh, you happen to share with me one of your research papers that you've done. And I guess my, my first question is... Um, is there a North Korean Batman? Is there a, a North Korean Avengers? No. The, North Korea has a kind of a strict dividing line between comics in books and animation on TV. So there, uh, there really isn't a lot of crossover in the way that there is, say, in the West or in Japan. So there are some series of animated films, like there's the, uh, the Boy General uh, and there's the one with the uh, squirrels and hedgehogs. 
think uh, literally it, just called Squirrel and Hedgehog. Yeah, I think that's the name of the series. Uh, yeah, uh, but in in terms of uh, published books, I've only found one book with uh, squirrels and and hedgehogs, where the hedgehogs are the uh, the main heroes. Uh, it's actually presented as volume one, so you assume there's going to be more, but I can't seem to find any more volumes of it. Uh, and there's one volume of I think the Boy General, but no more. So there really are no um, continuing series of comic books in which the same hero appears again and again. And certainly superheroes are not a thing in North Korea. What you do find, uh, a lot of North Korean comic books are set in the Korean War, uh, and the heroes are often uh, very strong, almost superhumanly strong uh, North Koreans, uh, certainly given for that given that time. I mean, don't forget that a lot of uh, Korean adults from both sides of the 38th parallel around the time of the Korean War would have grown up in a time of scarcity, so you can't imagine that they would have been bodybuilders and uh, and very muscly people. But that's how they're often presented in these comic books. Now, in your research, you uh, you broadly categorize all North Korean comic books across three different categories. One of them is manhwa, the other is gudim check, or literally picture book, and the other is sequential picture book. So, can can you tell us a little bit about how you decided uh, to categorize them in one of three ways, and what would be the criteria for each? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's complex. North Korea generally uses the word kurimchek uh, or pic- literally picture book. So in South Korea, if you go to a South Korean, if you go to Kyobo and ask for a kurimchek, they'll give you a book with pictures in it. But in North Korea, if you go uh, to a bookshop and ask for a kurimchek, they may give you either a comic book in the way that we understand it with uh, multiple frames per page and speech balloons, or they may give you a book that has uh, one picture per page and one paragraph of text, sort of more of an, an illustrated storybook. Uh, although this is a style of um, what they call comics that's quite common in, uh, in Europe. They're familiar with that in the Netherlands, for example. Uh, so Kudimchek is, is a kind of an umbrella term that covers all of those. And so without actually looking inside, if you just look at a cover of a, of a Kudimchek, you can't tell, is this a comic or is it an illustrated storybook? You've really got to pick it up and look inside. And then there are also some hybrid ones where the pictures look like they're uh, comic style and there may be one or two speech balloons in the whole book, but generally it's one, par- one slab of text per page. Uh, and so I tried to, in, in researching North Korean comic books, I tried to make sense of huh, what is a kudimchek and why don't they use the word manhwa? So manhwa is the, um, uh, the word used in South Korea for all comic books, all um, you know, sequential, multi-frame, multi-cell uh, stories with speech bubbles. Uh, manga is the Japanese version of the same word, and they have manhua uh, in Chinese. Uh, so it's the same Chinese characters, just three different, uh, slightly different readings across the three countries. In North Korea, the word manhua is used super rarely, and generally it seems to be used only on books or cartoons that parody South Korea. It's really interesting why they've chosen to go with that. So I found a couple of books printed in the 1980s that specifically parody life in South Korea. They poke fun at uh, President John Duhuan. And these are called manhwa or manhwa check. Uh, and sometimes you've got standalone uh, cartoons in magazines like Cholima, and they were, might be called Pungja manhwa or satirical uh, cartoon. But the, the sort of general catch-all term for all other comic books in North Korea is kurimchek. And what sort of messages would one encounter in this? Is this going to be mostly pro-Kim uh, Jong-il, Kim Il-sung, Kim uh, Jong-un sort of things, kind of the, the same sort of stuff one might encounter on KCNA? Or is there a, a specific sort of topic or trope or theme that actually one really only encounters in these comic books that you wouldn't find in the Norong Shinmun or some other mediums? Uh, no, they are generally those same themes, but they are pitched at a much younger audience, right? So you've got uh, 
generally, I kind of divide up um, the, the, the audiences of North Korean comic books into three groups. You've got uh, very, very young readers who might be uh, elementary school readers. And for them, uh, it's, not, it's very common to find uh, anthropomorphized animals as the major characters of stories. So stories about hedgehogs and squirrels and bunnies and deers and, and evil uh, weasels and um, foxes and wolves. Right. So in these stories, they're very simple uh, morality tales about um, what's good behavior and what's bad behavior. So you know, it's working with the group and, and harmony and things. Uh, and so, would these animal characters also reference the dear leader? No. So these animal characters don't really reference anything real world. They they have um, you know like the, the name of the, the the sort of Garden of Eden. I think it's Kotongsan, uh, if I remember rightly. So it's the the, the flowered mountain. Uh, so they they really are totally divorced from the real world, and so for me they're the less interesting kind of comic books. I don't find a lot in there, not just because they're pitched at younger audiences, but because they're divorced from the real world. And then you've got books that are written for um, older kid readers, so middle school and up, and and these will d- be divided usually into two groups. Some of them will be pre-modern stories, so stories from colonial times and even from pre-colonial times, so sort of the feudal era Korea, uh, and these are generally also morality tales. Sometimes you'll have a foreigner in them and there'll generally be a, an evil Japanese person who's trying to do something to, uh, to you know, bring down Korea or to upset the village or to steal some kind of resource. And then the second type of, of story is set in the Korean War. And these are the ones that are most interesting because, to me because you find uh, four character types in these Korean War stories. You have the doughty and, and brave North Korean and you have the uh, venal and twisted South Korean who sold out their country. And you have the evil Americans, and then you have the even more evil Japanese people. So these are the four character types that you find in the Korean War uh, stories. And, and uh, they generally involve foiling some plan by the Americans to bring in a brand new evil super weapon to win the Korean War. Interesting. And th- these would be aimed at young adults, basically. This is young, young adult fiction. Yeah, so uh, so teenagers and up, and then there's a, a, a smaller subset that really aim, seems to be aimed at uh, specifically adult readers, like you know, in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of them would be, I think, pitched at, at the teenage level, so middle school, high school. Is there a particular plot that you remember that uh, you really enjoyed reading from one of these? Yeah, well, when I first went to uh, to North Korea in in 2010, I visited, as most tourists do, the uh, Kim Il Sung International, so the International Bookshop on Kim Il Sung Square, and I didn't want to. Um, I wasn't really interested in the books that other people were looking at, and so I, I, I wanted to get a comic book. So I asked the woman behind the counter, "Do you have any comic books that represent or that, that show the true evil nature of the American imperialist bastards?" And and she laughed and went behind the curtain and came back with three books, which are the books that the thesis that you read uh, that I wrote for my master's degree at Leiden University. Uh, they were all based. Uh, well, the, the centerpiece of that research were these three books by one particular author slash illustrator, Trey Hyok. He was an all-round, is, was an all-round guy in that he uh, both drew the pictures and did the story. Normally in North Korean comics, there's quite a clear division of labor. Someone writes the story, somebody illustrates them. But he did everything. He even did the covers, which is really rare. And I think he's the most accomplished um, North Korean comic book writer in that he has the most complexity in his stories. He includes the most interesting detail from real life. And so he has, real, he has a real cinematog- cinematographic eye. He really uses different perspectives in his drawings, uh, close-ups, zoom-outs, uh, looking down from above, looking up from below, all of these things. So he really has a, a very developed... He clearly shows 
that he has learnt from American and Japanese comic books. He sh- seems to have gleaned the best out of all of those and put them into these three books. But what's interesting is that Chehok seems to have done nothing since 2006. Hmm. So perhaps he died, perhaps he stopped drawing comics, maybe he was sent to a camp, who knows? But uh, he had a, a very short period of, of activity in the early 2000s and is, is done now. Would you ever have, uh, say, supernatural powers or you know, uh, mm. s- superhuman abilities exhibited by either the protagonists or the antagonists? Yeah, uh, th- there have been some recent uh, comic books. Most comic books from North Korea are black and white, and they're in a book that's sort of a size, about the size of a novel, sort of a paperback novel, or a little bit bigger. Uh, but in, the, in recent years, there's been an annual series published, and these books are about A4 in size, and they are brightly colored, and they look like they've perhaps been put together on a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really showing quite a, a modernization there. And these books are in a series of stories that have been told by the generals of Pektusan. So we're talking Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, and also Kim Jong-suk. So these are stories apparently told by them. Uh, and so they're almost all of them stories set during Japanese colonial times. And what I was surprised to find, this, I think this series began around 2013, and I've been surprised to find that in almost every volume of them, there is some kind of what I would call magical realism. There's some element of magical realism. So just to give you one example, there's a story where um, three North Korean, sorry, three Korean partisans are being hunted by uh, Japanese anti-partisan soldiers. And the Japanese come upon where they were and find that they've disappeared, literally disappeared, leaving behind three still smoldering cigarettes. And so the Japanese uh, arrest the cigarette butts mm-hmm. and, and, and take them to a jail cell, believing that the Koreans have transformed themselves into these cigarettes. And in another story, uh, the Japanese are guarding a field of corn, huge field of corn. They've got soldiers stationed every, I don't know, five meters and somehow, and you actually see this in one frame, the corn just flies through the air away from the Japanese into Korean hands, the partisans' hands. So all of these stories have some element of, of magical realism that you would think North Korea, with its emphasis on uh, anti-superstition, anti-religion, pro-science, you would think that this would be completely nonsense to them, that they wouldn't uh, allow it. Uh, but there it is. You know, There's also this, this, this idea that Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung are able to teleport. Right? There's this Korean word, this, this thing called chukchi-bop, which is um, the ability to warp space. Kind of, yeah, like I think it's in, in Dune, in the, the series Dune. Yeah. Right? You can actually sort of warp space and travel from A to B uh, in, in a single bound, in a single step. And so uh, that's how they get out of these uh, tricky situations where the Japanese are upon them, is chukchi-bop. Now, given that these books are written for children... I don't think that they're intended to be believed literally by adults, but they do appear to be kind of like Santa Claus stories or tooth fairy stories in in the West that they I think they you know children are supposed to take them seriously at least for a time. You mentioned uh, this international bookstore in Pyongyang. Were there other comic books from abroad available there, and were you able to actually kind of see what sort of art styles are represented on Pyongyang bookshelves? You mean like non-North Korean comics? Yes, that's right. Oh, no. I, everything I saw in that bookshop was actually from North Korea. I don't know why they call it the International Bookshop. Maybe because that's where they, they have stuff published in other languages. You know, They have books there in English and German and Arabic and Spanish. And so perhaps that's why they call it that. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just wondering if you are an aspiring young artist uh, yeah. in North Korea you know, and, and you want to 
sort of diversify your art styles, kind of see what are some new and exciting techniques mm. uh, that are out there. Might you have access yeah, to no, that's uh, a great some question. comic books from abroad? So, so take Che Hyok, for example. I firmly believe that uh, he couldn't have developed to the level that he did without looking at source materials, without looking at American or, or Japanese comics to learn just different styles because so much of the, the early North Korean comics are uh, generally quite bland and, and, and actionless. So you've got very much uh, almost profile or front-on straight views of characters without a sense of movement or action. Right? So he, he really shows that level of, uh, of sophistication, which suggests to me that, yeah, he must have had access. Some of these, ar- these uh, artists at the, I don't know whether it's the, the Munster Studios or wherever they're learning these, the, the, these trades, they must have access to foreign materials, but they're not things that general North Korean readers would have access to. Now, there is, in Beijing, there is a bookshop, an official book room that acts as sort of an exporter for North Korean books. And they also seem to be an importer of South Korean materials because I visited that bookshop once just to have a look and to you know meet the people who work there. I think it was back in 2017 or 20 yeah 2017, uh, and I saw uh, definitely some South Korean publications there on the floor. So I believe that that's the conduit through which North Korean materials enter the outside world and through which outside world materials enter North Korea. But I can imagine that uh, only people with a special access pass would have uh, access to them. Now, do you also have webtoons or online-only comics in North Korea? I've not seen them, but of course in South Korea, you know, we don't have access to um, like Uri Minzokiri and, and those other North Korean websites. So I've sure. not seen uh, web-only uh, cartoons as they have here in South I Korea. I just mentioned that because they're, they're huge here in South Korea. Yeah, they're huge so, in South so Korea. So if there yeah. was any sort of, I guess, influence, you might expect to see some web-only publications from these North Korean websites? I have seen, I've been shown uh, by some people, uh, non-Koreans, who uh, bought North Korean tablets, tablet computers, you know, like a, like an iPad. And these sometimes come loaded with books, including uh, North Korean comic books. But it appears more, rather than it being a webtoon, rather than it being specially made for a tablet, it's simply a, a PDF scan of a comic book and you just flip the pages through so it's not actually you wouldn't call it a webtoon it's just a scanned comic book um loaded onto a onto a tablet right now what does one learn by reading these comic books mm. um, obviously there, there, there's a lot of ways to consume information about north korea right uh, what would you get by looking through a few of these different comics uh that you wouldn't get say by reading our coverage at nk news right yeah okay so um every piece of literature and art in north korea must have and this is from kim jong-il's uh, work on the fine arts, everything must have a message. Nothing is art for art's sake. Art for art's sake is, uh, is rejected as a concept by North Korea. So literature for literature's sake is, is rejected too. Entertainment for entertainment's sake, no. These are not things in North Korea. So all of these books have messages. And what's interesting to see is the, the techniques that are used and the messages that are delivered to impart the beliefs of the North Korean state onto the next generation. Because don't forget that you know, comic books generally target young readers. And so these are ways that the North Korean state tries to give its worldview to young readers to say, look, uh, everything is perfect in North Korea and everything is really, really bad outside North Korea. So don't go there. Right? There's the, I mean, the, the, most, um, sort of the, the clearest example of that was a series published back in the 1990s called Sokko Byongdun's Hesang, or A Sick and Twisted World. And that comes from a, a quote from Kim Il-sung, in which she's, may, or maybe Kim Jong-un, one of the two Kims, said that the capitalist world is a sick and twisted world. And so these books are uh, vignettes, little short stories 
um, of horrible things that happen in the capitalist world, including in South Korea. So you'll have, for example, women boxing women in, in oh, South Korea. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the humanity. Yeah, or um, you know, a, a poor uh, boy of color in the United States who uh, tries to drink water from the uh, garden faucet in front of a, a wealthy person's house and uh, is attacked and killed by a dog. Hmm. You know, just horrible little vignettes. But uh, oh, also eating competitions in America, right? You know, those, like, um, what's that hot dog competition they have at Coney Island every year? Oh, so, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Right. So think, yeah. it's not named Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Competition, but eating competitions as a concept are presented as, here's an example of the sick and twisted world in the capitalist society. So it, all of these things are shown as, um, this is how bad it is in the outside world, don't go there, uh, to make North Koreans scared and to make North Koreans concerned about, you know, ooh, it, it's a bad place, it's dangerous out there, I should stay here. That's really fascinating that you would present too much food to mm. a North Korean audience as a bad thing. Especially in the 1990s. Right. This is. I mean, that, that book came out just a couple of years before the arduous march. Now, they also use uh, the North Koreans. They use art to promote sort of uh, anti-South Korean or anti-U.S. Uh, politicians or or messaging. I remember recently here in South Korea there was a presidential election, mm. and uh, a number of these cartoons were released uh, through Uri Minjokidi and some some of these other uh, platforms, uh, decrying Un Sung Yeol usually after he would make some sort of statement that the North Koreans didn't like. Are these fundamentally different than, say, the, the comic book art style? I mean, some of these are actually quite creative. You know, they, they have caricatures and uh, they have yeah. diff different kind of action shots in them. And it's usually just a single frame um, with maybe a voice box, maybe not, and, you know, maybe some sort of title that contextualizes uh, what you're supposed to be getting out of this. So is that, is that different than uh, the stuff that we've been talking about? Uh, generally, yes, these days, although in the early days, I mean, back in the 1960s, uh, there was a, a, a North, an early North Korean cartoonist named Ha Nung Tech. I don't think he's alive anymore, but he did both uh, standalone satirical parody comics for the magazines Hwasal and Cholima, but he also did some you know, sequential comic books uh, or books that are serialized in Cholima. So he, he did both. You know, but these days I'm not sure whether the same artists do both the uh, uh, the sort of leafleting or the standalone comics and the comic books because you don't really see in comic books published in the last 20 years. It's very rare to see a real human being depicted. Mm. Certainly, you never see, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, you never ever see uh, Kim Il Sung, Kim Jong Il, or Kim Jong Un depicted in any comic book, and that's because uh, North Korea has very strict rules about what types of depiction are deemed sufficiently dignifying for the dignity of the great leader. Uh, so anything that doesn't dignify the great leader appropriately, such as a comic book, a caricature, something that simplifies, uh, it will not be used. Uh, also, no, uh, no embroidery, right? They take, you to the, uh, they take tourists to the Museum of Embroidery in North Korea, where they, they um, uh, make these beautiful artworks that could have been photographs, but they're cross-stitched. Not mm. embroidery, cross-stitched, I think. But they do not do any of that of the Kims. And I asked why, and they said it, it wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah. So, uh, so no comics of the, of the Kims. But also, you don't really see any comics about South Korean leaders anymore either. As I said, there were two examples back in the 1980s with that specifically uh, lampooned John Dewan. But I've not seen anything uh, since the 1980s that uh, bothers to uh, depict North Korean, uh, South Korean political leaders. Now, uh, 
propaganda cartoons used, for example, on the websites that you mentioned or on uh, on leaflets that North Korea has sent to South Korea. Yeah, sure, they absolutely ferociously uh, caricature South Korean presidents or political leaders. Uh, but th- there's very little crossover. You don't see that in the comic books for some reason. So it's, it's almost like there's a, a division of labor. You've got a factory over here that does... The, the cartoons for the website and for the newspapers and for the leaflets, and you have a factory over here that does comic books and never the twain shall meet. I don't know how it works. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a bit of evolution in terms of art styles mm. and uh, expression. Do you see any major departures uh, under Kim Jong-un in terms of the art direction? Uh, so, for example, we, we just recently ran a piece last week on NK News. Um, the author was engaging with this idea that, that certain propaganda has become much more colorful uh, a little bit more, let's say, let's say less sophisticated, but accessible. Uh, and this is a big result of Kim Jong-un, or at least Kim Jong-un's propagandists, mm. I guess, adopting more modern art forms, uh, understanding that the social media age is actually better inclined towards, say, you know, kind of, kind of fast, kind of rapid hits. So you want bright colors, you want kind of like uh, choppy edits. Do you also see that in comic books published in the last five to 10 years? Yeah, great question. Um, so North Korea each year produces somewhere between 10 to 40 comic books. It's not a great output, but it's not completely minuscule either. Uh, Especially when of, you said that they are novel length. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite thick. Right. So I think probably graphic, graphic novel is, is probably an appropriate word to use it because, yeah, a lot of them are 100 pages or more. They're standalone books. Uh, you, you do also see two-part, three-part, even four-part series, but generally standalone is the most common form. A lot of these you can see if you're a researcher, you can go to, um, uh, for example, the uh, Korean National Library has a North Korean materials room. Uh, of course, it's all covered by the National Security Act, so you have to, uh, to sign in and register there. But you can look at North Korean comics there. Uh, if you're overseas, there are libraries in America that have them. Leiden University, where I did my master's degree, has a very substantial library of comic books. Now, so I go there occasionally to the libraries to look at uh, at what's what the most recent output is. And what I've found is that I can't see a significant difference um, from the Kim Jong-il era to the Kim Jong-un era. Uh, even in the Kim Jong-il era, they were already doing stuff that, some comic books that you would say, oh, it's glossy paper, it's full-colored it looks like it could be cells from a Disney movie. And indeed, during Kim Jong-il's leadership of North Korea, uh, North Korea apparently did out- do some outsourcing work producing animation cells for Disney. So you can see that touch in some of those comic books that were published when Kim Jong-il was alive. So when Kim Jong-un took over just over a decade ago, I don't see any change of style. I do see more of this, um, what I call the uh, magical realism storyline coming through those uh, that series of uh, stories apparently told by the the Pectosan generals, but nothing uh, visual that that is is new from Kim Jong Un. Yeah, so so nothing exclusive, I guess, that you would find in comic books a particular line or a particular opinion uh, about some sort of worldview or North Korean society that no. they would they would really hammer home in the comics, but maybe not so much in the Nodong Shinmun. No, and, and actually the other thing that really interests me is that uh, it's rare to find a comic book that is set both in the real world and in the present day, right? So I mentioned before that uh, for the young readers, you get a lot of uh, anthropomorphized animals, and for the older readers, you get a lot of stories either during feudal times, colonial times, or in the Korean War. It's really rare to find something set uh, in a in a recognizable modern North Korea. I don't know why, but they just seem to eschew 
that, uh, that milieu for some reason, or that background. Uh, I can think of only a few examples. There's, there's one uh, that was set during the, uh, the arduous march, and it involves um, rice, uh, rice that has been gifted as aid to North Korea, but has been poisoned by South Koreans, and people are dying from it. So that's one. Uh, and then there's a series uh, of, of comic books published about 15 years ago, uh, which is set, I guess, in, in the modern day. They don't give you a year, but it just seems that it's modern because people are driving cars and there's apartment buildings and stuff. But it's really quite rare. They f- really seem to like stuff from uh, 1953 or earlier for a time and place setting. No uh, COVID-related contacts yet? Well, given that um, you know trade with North Korea kind of stopped in January 2020 anyway, I haven't seen an, uh, a North Korean comic book published any later than, I think, 2018. Because mm-hmm. it normally takes a, a year or so to get out. So uh, yeah, I've not seen anything since then. I don't even know if they've been producing. What have you learned from reading comics for all these many years? What have I learned? Um, well, that ideology in North Korea is really important. And that's why it, it, uh, you know, it, it's, that's what maintains the regime stability, is keeping... Uh, everybody on message and passing that message on to the young North Koreans. Who, cause when you're young, when you're you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, you haven't yet started going to the, the weekly Saturday uh, political sessions where you do the mutual criticism and learning about the lives of the great leaders and, and, and these revolutionary feats. So this is kind of like a, almost like a gateway drug, like a soft way to introduce concepts to North Korean kids that they will later have reinforced in much more boring ways for the rest of their lives. So uh, I, I, get, I, I really enjoy the, the hybridity of, of comic books that it's it seeking to, to, to put a message across in both visual and textual matters, whereas most of North Korean stuff, gosh, if you've, have you ever looked at a North Korean novel? Yeah, they're, they're, they're very vapid. Um, but also, they're, they're extremely dense. The type is extremely dense. Yeah. It's printed on poor quality paper with small margins. If you look at a, like t- take, for example, in South Korea, when they translate a Harry Potter book into South Korea, it's actually published in multiple volumes. One, one Harry Potter book comes out in like two or three volumes with double spacing and wide margins. So it's really easy to read on good quality paper. North Korea, you got this, um, sometimes the printing doesn't, it's a little bit faded or a bit patchy. And it, you just get a headache trying to read one page of a North Korean novel. So I find that a comic book is much more visually attractive because they're trying to convey a message in this hybrid nature, that this visual language uh, of comics. That is, uh, that is both visual and textual. Um, so that's why I find it much more interesting to look at. But in terms of what, what I've learned from it, uh, it's that yeah, North Korea is, is very much committed to uh, keeping those messages going of, of loyalty to the state, the party, the group, and the leader. You know, on that topic, uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is the first time that you've been a guest mm. on the NK News podcast. What has been your, some of your favorite shows uh, over the years? Uh, this is now the fourth year of the show, yeah. uh, we expect at least 250 more episodes. Yeah, yeah. What are some, th- some things that really stick out to you, uh, particular interviews, insights, uh, and, and maybe if you wanted to repeat the question from before, what have you learned uh, over four years of doing this podcast? Yeah, uh, so let's start with the last part first. What have I learned over four and a half years of doing this podcast? I guess it's that, well, you know, it, we of course at NK News, we know this because we've been t- saying it to people, but it really becomes real to you that North Korea is so much more than a, a simple parody that you might find in a tabloid newspaper. It's so much more than, than nukes and weird haircuts, right? That it really is a, uh, a full country with every aspect of human life that you can find in other countries. Uh, that's not to say that I would want to live there, 
but it is to say that yeah, we, there's 22 million people there, and they're reading books and they're falling in love and they're doing jobs and they're having a hard time finding the food that they want or the products that they need, you know, f- for their homes. I mean, it, it's it's uh, there's so many aspects of North Korea, and and that's why I enjoy the fact that this. I, through this podcast, I'm able to talk to experts from literally any field, anyone who knows anything about North Korea, you know, whether that's um, insect plagues in North Korea to, uh, to comic books in North Korea. I'll talk to anybody because it, it's all relevant and it's all interesting and it's all part of the, the tapestry uh, of, of 22 million lives that in North Korea. We mustn't, we, and it's too easy through news stories, uh, particularly in the mainstream media, outside NK News, it's too easy to mistake the North Korean leadership for North Korea. Uh, but it's so much more than that. So that's really what I've learned and had re-impressed on me week after week. So some of those more interesting podcasts have been things that had nothing to do with leadership or negotiation. I really enjoyed back in 2019 when it was the 30th anniversary of the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in North Korea, uh, talking to people who had been there or who had studied that. That was really fascinating. Multi-episode saga there. Multi-episode. It was like a, it was a summer special miniseries, as yeah, you'll recall. Right. So that was fascinating. Also, quite recently, talking to uh, Park Hyung-soo, the uh, designichi, a Korean-Japanese lady, about her uh, family and her own dealings with North Korea. That was just a very human story, very touching and really interesting. Uh, I could have talked to her for hours about that. Um, in terms of leadership and negotiations, the two and a half hours that I had with Steve Began, that was priceless. That was really interesting. I learned a lot uh, from him just about the, the ins and outs of, of talking to North Korea at the top level. Well, as he told us later, I mean, he really saw that as his putting uh, his name on the record no. uh, because he doesn't want, at least at this point, to write any sort of biography or memoirs. He doesn't memoirs. want to write a so book. He doesn't want it, to do a... It, the NK yeah. News podcast interview with Steve yeah. Began is his memoirs. That's right. Yeah, so I, I I feel really privileged to have been uh, lucky enough to in, uh, in, interview all these people. There's still more people I'd like to get on. I'd like to get Michael Caine to come on and talk about his time here in, during the Korean War. Uh, of course, uh, anyone from the Kim family, if they're listening, welcome to come on the show. Maybe you have to do that one via Zoom. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that I want to get. I want to get more um, South Korean unification ministers and foreign ministers on. Uh, they're very reluctant to talk in public. Yeah. Yeah, well, with the change of administration, uh, hopefully some uh, Moon Jae-in folks might be willing to yeah. come on the show. Open invitation for anyone listening. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned uh, getting to know uh, North Korea better. In that vein, what are three North Korean comic books that you would recommend uh, readers check out if they want to learn more about uh, the research that you do or maybe just uh, better understand the country? So I would start with uh, this, this, this series of three books by Che Hyok that I mentioned before. So there's uh, Tuksu Jakjon, Special Operation, uh, Tepung Jakjon, Operation Typhoon, and uh, Ryusong Jakjon, which is you know, Operation Shooting Star or Operation Meteorite. Those are three really solid, substantial books to get your teeth in. Uh, I would also absolutely recommend uh, to study Nado Ahopsal, which is, you wouldn't call it a comic in a Western sense. I mean, the comic book, the, the picture style is comics, but there's no speech balloons. It's a single paragraph of text and one picture per page. But it really, it is a modern day story uh, set in, I think it's the early 2000s, purporting to tell the true story, the life and death of a nine-year-old girl named Yu Hyang Nim. Um, her school is now named after her. She was 
uh, a scaredy cat. You know, she didn't want to get her vaccination because she was scared of needles, like me. Uh, she was scared of jumping into the pool. She was scared of lots of things, but she grew up. And then one day when she's nine, suddenly uh, somehow she finds herself asleep at home alone. Dad is doing a late shift at the factory. Mom is out of town for a wedding somewhere in the, in the provinces. And she's alone at home in Pyongyang when an electrical fault starts a fire in her house and the house is burning down and she's the only one there and she wakes up and she's scared but she has the presence of mind to to make, crawl her way to the door and at the door she's about to leave the house she remembers i've got to go back and save the portraits of kim il sung and kim jong-il and she crawls back to the bathroom coughing through the smoke she brings down the lovingly pulls down the portraits from the wall wraps them up in this gaudy pink floral blanket that is very famous in North Korea. If you've ever seen pictures of North Korean uh, bedrooms or living rooms, you'll always see this very um, pink uh, polyester blanket that they make there. And she wraps it up in a blanket to protect them. And she crawls back out the door uh, and, and sort of stumbles outside, hacking and coughing. And that's where she's found dying, brought away by ambulance to a hospital, but she dies. But she's a hero because she saved those two portraits. She saved the dignity of the two leaders. And so... Um, she is posthumously awarded membership in the, uh, the Youth Brigade, and the school is renamed after her. And that is a real school, the Yu Yang Nim uh, in Minhakyo. It's a real school in Pyongyang, and, and there's a statue of her in the grounds of that school uh, to commemorate her. And so uh, it, it's amazing. So, so she, the title of the book, Nado Aopsal, I too am nine years old, it harks back to a nine-year-old girl who every North Korean knows, um, I've forgotten her name, who during the anti-Japanese struggle was tortured to death by the Japanese, but until the last, her last breath refused to give up the location of the other partisans. And so that's uh, a child hero that other children look up to. So Yu Hyung Nim learned this story, read this story, and she said, I'm nine years old too. I'm going to do something heroic one day. And she did. She saved those portraits. And that to me is the saddest, I mean, I'm not a parent, you are a parent, but that to me is the saddest story of, you know, here's a child who, rather than saving herself, saves the lives of two portraits, of which there are millions of them, literally millions of them, uh, in North Korea. Uh, and it just breaks my heart. So I think that's a, uh, a story that really shows you that, here, it's sort of held up as a norm, you know, you want to be a hero? Do what this girl did. Uh, I haven't given a complete total of three. I've given four books, but those are good places to start. So you mentioned going to uh, kind of different archives and doing your research abroad, but I myself and, and other people involved uh, with anything North Korea always find it really, really difficult to access primary materials here in South Korea. Mm. How do you navigate this? When I mean, we, we, we also, this is a daily struggle at NK News, but when you're, when you're doing your research for, for, for comics, or even for the show, oftentimes you're, you're having to engage with North Korean materials. How do you get around these, these censorship, censorship laws here in South Korea? Yeah, it's really difficult. And that's exactly why I did my master's degree in the Netherlands rather than in Korea, because in the Netherlands you can access North Korean comic books and you can, you can read them and you can study them uh, as much as you like. But here in, in South Korea, you know, you, just to, uh, to enter the North Korean materials reading room at the National Library, you have to uh, register and then uh, to be able to take a photocopy of anything, you have to have a permission letter from, I think it's the Vice Minister of Unification or a Chancellor of a foreign university. So it's, it's very hard, it's very difficult to see them. And so sometimes, you know, you can find materials uh, online, but 
you know, all those websites that come directly from North Korea or that are run by North Korea, like KCNA, like Uri Minjokiri, they're all blocked here. And uh, that's under the 1949 South Korean National Security Law, which forbids the dissemination of uh, of material that praises the North Korean regime. Uh, and I, what's unfortunate is that there doesn't seem to be a clear distinction made between looking at something for educational research purposes uh, and and disseminating something because you're actually in support of the North Korean government. Uh, and so the uh, the South Korean government is very strict um, on that, and and that's unfortunate. I think, and periodically it's mentioned that you know South Koreans will be allowed access to North Korean websites or North Korean television or North Korean radio. Uh, and I, I wish it would happen. I wish that the South Korean government would show enough trust in its citizenry to determine what is good information and what is bad information. Have and you ever run into any uh, legal troubles, uh, you know, making a request and then they actually followed up on that and probed you about why exactly you're asking about this particular North Korean book? No, no, but there was that time in, in 2019 when I was uh, stopped at Incheon Airport coming back into uh, South Korea and uh, they removed all my North Korean materials from me uh, and said, you can get them back, but you have to um, make an application through the, I think it's the Office of Inter-Korean Cooperation within the Ministry of Unification. Um, so they were held at the airport and you know I went through a process and I applied to get them back and I was allowed to get them back, but I had to go through some bureaucratic hurdles and you know, so there's a file on me somewhere at the National Intelligence Service. They know uh, who I am and, and what my interests are, I'm sure. And once more, I'd like to repeat once again that I'm not trying to bring down the South Korean government and I'm not uh, in support of um, what the government in Pyongyang does or unification led by North Korea. So, uh, you know, I, I think these things are worth looking at for uh, in order to get a better understanding of North Korea, in order to, you know, to, to, to know what they're doing up there and what they're teaching up there. Jacko, that's all from me. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, being on this side of the table and being able to interview you. Thank we look forward to the next 250 or so episodes of the NK News podcast. Come back for 500. You can interview me again. Now, if you are interested in uh, you know, reading some of his takes uh, on comic books and other uh, North Korea-related things, uh, where can people connect with you? Yeah, people can find my uh, master's uh, degree thesis actually on line at the University of Leiden. It's free for download as a PDF. So if you just Google English, you know, my name, Jacko's Wetsloot, uh, North Korean graphic novels, uh, that thesis will pop up. And there was another paper that I wrote that was published um, in an online journal about the comic books pitched at younger readers in which the characters are all anthropomorphized animals. So you can find that too if you Google, you know, Jacko's Wetsloot, North Korean comics. All right. A big thank you to Brian Betts and myself for facilitating mm. this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-production genius, uh, who makes our voices sound legible and mm. interesting and really puts everything together.